0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: New Books Network and your host Nathan Moore, are happy to bring Dr. John M. Kinder and Jason A. Higgins to this episode on the topic of marginalized veterans. Their book is titled Service Denied, Marginalized Veterans in Modern American History. Its release date was this past July in 2022 and chronicles how different demographics of veterans um, were not recognized with proper benefits nor historically noted. Um, These include LGBTQ, women, people of color, or military members with bad health conditions or criminal histories. Um, John and Jason, please introduce yourselves to the NBN audience.
1: Hi, uh, this is John Kinder, I'll go first. I am the director of the American Studies Program and an associate professor of history at Oklahoma State University. I've appeared on the NBN Network in the past talking about my first book, which was called Paying With Their Bodies, American War and the Problem of the Disabled Veteran, which was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2015. Uh, I'm a scholar of war and society a scholar of disability, and most recently, my work has focused on the relationship between uh, zoos and animal collections and warfare. In fact, just recently, my newest book uh, uh, was uh, accepted uh, or taken under contract by the University of Chicago Press, again, and that's a single volume history of zoos during World War II. Um, so that's that's where I'm coming from.
3: Um, my name is Jason Higgins. I wanna thank you, Nathan, for this opportunity to share our work. Um, I am currently a postdoctoral fellow at Virginia Tech in digital humanities and oral history. I completed my PhD in history at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst in 2021. Um, My research focuses on uh, veterans, obviously, but specifically veterans who are in the criminal justice system. So my uh, next monograph, which is currently under peer review, which will also be uh, published by UMass Press, um, is a history of incarcerated veterans since the Vietnam War to um, the recent conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq. So it kind of covers that 60-year period of of history. Um, More generally, uh, I I do modern US history, African-American history, and global history in the intersections of those areas. I have a master's in English um, from Oklahoma State University, which is where I first met John Kinder. And yeah, just thank you for this opportunity again, and I look forward to the conversation.
2: Yes. So our topic for today is decidedly American, but the audience may want to know more about how these marginalized veterans fit into the trope or the archetype of an American hero. Um, Are these discriminated against groups patriots in the normal sense or are they something else? How would you describe their narrative or image of the marginalized veteran? Uh,
1: this is John. Well, I'll take a stab at that if you don't mind. Uh, I should say at, at first, you know, we started this book, or you know, I was initially thinking about this book, and I approached Jason about it um, out of a sense of frustration, uh, in part because we, when we encountered. Um, whether it's uh, scholarly discussions of veterans or, more importantly, and more potently, uh, discussions of veterans in the public sphere. We kept coming across these archetypes, these stereotypes, right? And in fact, you know, uh, we sort of talk about it as the myth of the American veteran. That is, that being a veteran is a singular experience. Being a veteran, there's only one way of being a veteran. And according to popular culture, to be a veteran is to go off, to fight in some kind of combat, to come home and to either experience trauma or some kind of troubled reintegration. And of course, what we realized was that, you know, the vast majority of veterans' experiences look nothing like that. And yet, you know, their stories tend not to be told. Their stories are not turned into movies. They're not captured in memoirs. And so what we found was, uh, you know, within this, you know, the uh, idea of veterans or veteranness, uh, you have all of these people who don't quite fit. And we were struggling to kind of come up with a way of talking about them. And that's how we eventually agreed upon This concept of marginalized veterans. That was, uh,
3: you know, very well put.
1: Um, So I'll just add a couple
3: of things to those points, and I would just say that these archetypes of heroism and the hero are oftentimes, um, you know, myths. They're, They're ideals to which human beings can't possibly live up to those types of expectations. So whenever you ask, you know are they patriots? Um, I would say a lot of veterans, first off, they push back against the idea of a hero, that that they consider themselves heroes. and Sometimes that's humility talking, but also I think that um, it's pushing back against, um, you know, fitting within these prescribed narratives of of what it means to serve in the military. Um, Most of the veterans I've interviewed, I usually ask, In some way, you know, how do you define patriotism? And I I never get the same answer twice. You know, everyone defines those terms differently based on their own um, experiences, but also preconceived notions of what those terms actually mean. So, is it patriotic to, um, you know, serve in the military, go to war, and then come home? Uh, A lot of Americans would agree with that, but isn't it also patriotic to? To vote, to uh, register voters, to come home to your community and uplift the most marginalized people? Is it patriotic to volunteer in youth communities and and things like that? So I I think that those terms are so broad that they're inherently marginalizing to actual human beings. Um, But I do um, find their narratives oftentimes to be. Uh, reaffirming of the human spirit, because a lot of the veterans that I've talked to, at least, they do engage in this type of selfless acts of what I consider, at least, to be
1: patriotic. And just to jump back in, you know, I should say that you you mentioned this term discrimination, um, and that's a really important concept for us. Uh, And we talk about in the book how, well, wait a minute, you know, can we really even talk about marginalization and veterans in the same breath, right? After all, if you're talking about populations in uh, American society that are more privileged, who are, you know, given more access to social power, more access to social programs, who tend to be held up in higher regard, right? Is there any other group that is... um, More celebrated than veterans. Well, so so how do we even talk about marginalization if we're talking about this group? Well, you know, and that's really what got us started because you know what we wanted to recognize or wanted you know readers to recognize with this book was that well not all veterans are the same, not all veterans have the same access to these social programs, not all uh, have access to these heroic images, not all of them have access to even being accepted as veterans, right? Whether we're talking about, you know, people who served in unpopular wars, people who wind up mustered out of service for uh, uh, reasons that seem decidedly unheroic, uh, uh, women, people of color, queer people, people whose experiences, not only in the military, but as veterans, have been marginalized uh, as a whole, right? So, you know, what we wanted to do with, with this piece was to to try to shine a light on all of these veterans who, for one reason or another, might find themselves left out of the, you know, the more uh, common <laughs> story we have in the United States about what American uh, veteran is and, and what they should stand for, right? So that's a that's a great question. Yeah,
2: John Warzencroft, who's at Louisiana Tech University, um, he wrote the chapter "The Wrong Man in Uniform: Anti-Draft Republicans and the Ideological Origins of the All Volunteer Force, 1966 to 1973." Can you tell us how anti-draft Republicans? For example, were part of your marginalization story.
1: Well, I'll I'll jump in again, and this is a, a you know one of those questions that you know book editors have all the time. You know, you you know someone you want to contribute, you have a sense that this uh, is a story that somehow intersects with the broader story that you're trying to tell. But how do they fit? Well, what we ultimately realized was that. In telling the history of anti-draft Republicans, these were um, conservative young people who fought against and uh, 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 lobbied against the all-volunteer force in the Vietnam War era, you know, you could see this in a couple of different ways, right? You can see this as a political story, but what we saw in this story was something that echoed, you know, so many of the other chapters in the book, which was, this sense that here we have a young, uh, a group of young people who did not want to be veterans, right? They, you know, when they came to associate, uh, military service, right. They thought of, you know, uh, that, well, they thought of things like marginalization that, you know, military service was a waste of time. Military service was something that only, you know, to use a world war one era term, uh, suckers engaged in, you know, world war, uh, Military service was something for something else, right? So here you have what we saw in this chapter was uh, a kind of discussion of or an argument against the very idea of becoming a veteran, right? And so as soon as we began to uh, think about it in that way, you know, it it immediately began to resonate and it immediately fit. I don't know if you have uh, Jason other thoughts on that or not.
3: Sure. Well, I would just add that as a social historian, um, I, I think that you have to look at history from the bottom up, obviously, but without that top-down perspective, you're missing a really important element of a story. Um, and for me, these are policymakers. These are powerful men in society who had the political capital to affect policy. And those policies ultimately affected the lives of the most marginalized groups of Americans and, and uh, ultimately created this historic watershed moment that led to the end of the draft in the United States. It created um, the uh, all volunteer force, but it also created another group of Americans who ultimately would serve in Post Vietnam War era conflicts. And, uh, you know, these, this also represents a moment whenever more women start serving. You see between 1973 and 2020, a jump from fewer than 2% of the military force being constituted by women to nearly 18% today. So these um, small, influential, conservative white men in the 1960s had profound influence over the society's makeup today in which fewer than one half of 1% of Americans actually serve in the military because there's no longer that draft, that that mechanism that compels um, groups of men into service. So where do those um, military members come from? They usually come from uh, working class to min- lower middle class backgrounds. They usually come from military families with a legacy of military um, experience, but they also come from immigrants. They come from people who are seeking citizenship as a, so military is a pathway to citizenship. And so it further marginalizes different groups of veterans. So for those reasons alone, I think that this chapter is, um, important enough to include in this greater narrative about what it means to be a marginalized veteran in in modern American society.
2: As editors, um, and looking at all of the different authors that are in the volume, um, how did each of the authors and historians contribute to its interdisciplinary or
3: intersectionality?
1: Jason, do you want to start with this one?
3: Um, I think you're, I mean, I do have an interdisciplinary background with with English and history, but I think that you're in uh, more of a position to speak to the inherently interdisciplinary nature of that question.
1: Well, I mean, and this is something that, you know, all book editors sometimes struggle with, right? We have a sense of what the book can be. We have a sense of you know, who might possibly contribute to it. But at, in the end, we really have no idea what will be contributed. We can sort of push along the margins. We can make suggestions. We can obviously make edits. Um, but what you're trying to do is sort of bring together a number of scholars and kind of bring out the best of them. Uh, speaking, you know, uh, intersectionally, what we recognized from the very beginning was that we were – Going to be unable to cover all of the populations who might be described as marginalized uh veterans, right? So what we wound up doing was focusing on uh several key topics, several te- um, uh, key ideas that in which uh you know different groups of veterans across time might uh we can sort of see the the uh, parallels between them. So a number of our chapters focus on race, a number of them focus on class or uh, social marginalization. We have gender and sexuality uh, and we have stigma and health. And, you know, by sort of what we wanted to do in this is to not only sort of show how being a veteran is shaped by, all of these other dimensions of social identity, but uh, how they are different and how they are similar, right? Um, As for being interdisciplinary, you know, this is in some ways a product of the historians, the the scholars themselves, right? So, you know, uh, we have one chapter that is really a long analysis and a cultural and contextual analysis of an unpublished memoir. We have others that are based upon uh, a kind of broad reading of uh, American history as it relates to a specific uh, veterans group. We have, you know, uh, others that are focused on you know, archival research, and of course, you know Jason's work is based in oral history and so forth. So, although all of the chapters are historical, they're they're they really are coming at um, history through different kinds of primary sources, right? And you know, as someone who is trained in interdisciplinary American studies, that's always what you want to see, at least in my mind.
3: Well, I wonder, John, if you would speak to the um, different ways that you located marginalized veterans in your chapter, like where did you draw your sources from? How did you find these voices?
1: You know, and and this is something that, uh, you know, I was speaking with my students today about in particular, Um, you know, so uh, uh, for me, you know, I was trained as, I said, as in American studies. Right. And so for me, the way I I tend to work is by going into, you know, uh, original primary sources. Right. So in this case, I'm looking at ideas about health. And so I'm looking at, uh, medical textbooks, medical journals, medical volumes that were published in the 1940s, um, and as well as kind of medical treatises from this era and official histories. Right? Uh, but, you know, I know that I need to go beyond that. So what I wound up doing was searching for voices in different kinds of areas. So I went online and I looked at blogs. I looked at social media posts. Uh, I discovered uh the transcripts of veterans courts, you know, online, I pulled in popular culture, I pulled in memoirs, right? So for me, if you sort of, you know, my training kind of urges me to sort of think about a topic from not only multiple points of view, but to actually use different kinds of sources throughout. And that's actually a little different from some of the other volumes, uh, some of the other essays in the volume. Um, But that ultimately, you know, is is part of my training right so that i'm bringing together voices that if i simply analyze medical doctrine medical theory so forth uh i really would not be able to get the you know as jason says the bottom up you know uh first person perspectives of of individual soldiers
3: and i i guess with me as an oral historian i'm i'm trained to look at the world and ask questions about it you know uh, who can best answer those questions? You know, what kind of different questions can I raise and then directly have my sources answer in an interview? So it's a little different from an archival historian who uh, I imagine sometimes wishes that they could go back in time and talk with the people that they're reading about. In my case, i I can if I can find them, if I can locate them. Um, and, you know, similarly, with John, I use social media as well to to be able to find these different groups of veterans and and to um, recruit them. But you know, in the beginning of the Incarcerated Veterans Oral History Project, I was very active in searching these groups of veterans out. But um, eventually, they started finding me. They they had been wanting to tell these stories, and so through social media and as as active as I tend to be on Twitter, Facebook was always far more effective at actually communicating with veterans groups uh, for whatever reason And so you know I, I'm asking these types of questions um, against the scholarship so I, I look at the current world and then I start asking historic questions about it and that leads to gaps in the historiography you know why hasn't any other, historian seriously um, documented the experiences of veterans in the criminal justice system whenever you know if you look um, in the news oftentimes you will see veteran treatment courts so they're they're in the world but they're not in the historiography so I I kind of invert that um, historical thinking and rather than you know kind of reading broadly this historiography and looking for a gap I'm trying to to fill in our knowledge based through the historiography. So this allows me to ask new questions like, um, you know, what are the effects of intergenerational trauma through the families of Black veterans, which is what my chapter is all about. And what
2: has the reception been like for for Service Denied? Do you have any reviews that you read or like to mention?
1: Well, I... I'm not sure we have any reviews yet because it's, it's a fairly recent book, but um, I know there have been uh, Jason has not only uh, written a recent article drawing upon this, uh, this book, but also was interviewed by NBC news about uh, this project as well. So Jason, do you want to speak to some of the things that uh, some of the reception you've had? Well, I
3: um, have been writing my scholarship with veterans as an audience in mind. So what I wanted to do in envisioning this um, co-edited volume, as well as my forthcoming manuscript, is to write something that veterans groups would care about. Um, And this NBC article that you mentioned, it um, highlights the collection, but it also spotlights um, one of the, the veterans I interviewed. Um, so it tells his story, and then it tells it through the greater historical context. And that article, in particular,ly has been shared among many different veterans groups. So I hope that the reception, as well. But as we said at the beginning, not all veterans identify as the same type of group. Everyone has, you know, broad and diverse ideological um, systems of belief under which they operate, and everyone's different, right? So I hope that we've written a, a volume that will speak to some of those differences while um also you know engaging the scholarly community but for me as a public historian um i i really hoped that our our work would reach a public audience rather than a narrow kind of group of a subset really of scholars who work on veterans issues although i i do think that you know i've, I've had some uh People who identify as scholars of veteran studies reach out to me and say that they're interested in the book for a class they're teaching. So hopefully um, the fall semester and spring semester will bring some more academic uh, enthusiasm behind the project as well. So Nathan, thank you for the work that you're doing to help get the word out more. Mm
2: -hmm. What was each editor's role um, in this overall project. And we can start with Kinder's chapter. Um, essentially, what chapter did you write? And then what was it about? And how does it represent the volume as a whole?
1: Well, thank you. Uh, well, uh, to get to your, I'll, I'll talk about the chapter first before I get to the editor's role, because that's, you know, that's in some ways a, a little trickier. Um, so I wrote a chapter about the treatment of enuretic. Um, veterans since World War II. That is, veterans or military personnel who uh, are diagnosed with enuresis or bedwetting. And, you know, I was particularly uh, uh, drawn to this topic after reading a World War II era memoir by uh, Robert Leckie called Helmet for My Pillow, and in it, he describes how, while in service during World War II, uh, he, he developed bedwetting. And this is troubling for him. He gets sent to a psychiatrist. Uh, and eventually, it sort of resolves itself. But, uh, you know, as I read it, I couldn't help but thinking, think, but, well, this is the first time I've ever heard anyone, particularly in a memoir, talk about it. Like this openly in this way. So, did other veterans uh, or did other military personnel uh, develop bedwetting and enuresis? And as it turns out, you know, enuresis was a major concern um, by uh, psychiatrists and by doctors during World War II. So, what I wound up doing in the chapter is tracing evolving ideas about enuresis or bedwetting. Uh, among military personnel and among veterans since the World War II era to the present. Uh, and initially what I found was that enuresis came to be associated with uh, all kinds of pathological ailments, at least according to the time. Right, uh, Enuresis was a sign of some kind of inner unseen um pathology, right? And so it was useful, at least according to those uh, recruiters at the time and others, useful as a way of separating uh, uh, certain military personnel. Um, in fact, um, anorectic veterans were categorized under this broader category, uh, category called um, uh, unsuitability, right? And so they were unsuitable. And not in being unsuitable for uh, military service, you know, this meant they were unsuitable for all of the things that come with military service, right? All of the recognition and so forth. So my chapter traces the history of ideas about aneuryses from, uh, from World War II to the present day. And, you know, this was a topic that really spurred my thinking about the volume as a whole. Because, as I said, you know, when we're thinking about veterans, you know, we have this idea about what a veteran is and what uh, he or she encounters, and what the veteran's experience is all about. Um, and that doesn't involve bedwetting. And yet, there were tens of thousands of people. Who uh, not only were kicked out of the military because of aneurysms, but veterans who developed aneurysms in the aftermath of the war because of trauma, because of cancer, because of older age, and so forth. Right. So you have this whole group of veterans um, who experience this thing, but you know are basically invisible except for this this one memoir. And and so that's really what started me thinking about this uh, project. And at that point, um, I knew that I couldn't do it alone. So I approached um, Jason about trying to develop something. And together, we kind of uh, uh, worked on this concept of the marginalized veteran and began reaching out to some of our colleagues at other universities who we felt were working on similar topics, um, even if they would not have initially used the term marginalized veteran, right? So, so that's what I was doing in my chapter. In Jason Higgins'
3: chapter, um, would you like to go over it? Sure. I'd love to talk about it. Um, So my chapter is about incarcerated veterans, and it's in many ways it's a preview of my dissertation project, which traces the history of um, veterans within the criminal justice system, but also makes a connection between the Vietnam War and the rise of mass incarceration in the United States today. Um, So I show that through this chapter, through the oral histories of three veterans. Two of them were Vietnam War era, and one of them was an Iraq War veteran. Um, The first veteran, he kind of represents this history of these Black veterans who were drafted under Project 100,000, experienced combat. Um, This particular um, veteran uh, served during the Tet Offensive. Um, He served two tours. Um, He was medically discharged against his wishes. um, And he came back to the the United States without many economic opportunities, like many African-Americans during the Vietnam War period, in which unemployment rates for Black veterans were three times higher than whites. Uh, Black veterans also experienced higher casualty rates throughout the Vietnam War period. Um, So he came home to Detroit, couldn't work in the factory because it reminded him of the, the noises that he associated with Vietnam. So he had undiagnosed and unrecognized PTSD. He ultimately commits um, bank robbery. And so he gets a life sentence in, in prison after a war. Um, and he served over 40 years in prison. He was actually released um, as a, as an emergency precaution during COVID and, um, Another veteran uh, had served in, um, in Okinawa in the Vietnam War era, although he didn't deploy to Vietnam. Um, he was the victim of racial violence. Uh, he crossed the color line and, and was beaten up by white veterans. And in the aftermath of that, he was actually punished for going off base while the, the, the white soldiers who attacked him were not punished. And so that created this institutional betrayal. Um, which developed into this larger sense of what we might call today moral injury. This is this betrayal of what's right by someone in a position of, of authority. Um, he starts using heroin while he's in the military in Okinawa, and he comes back um, to New York City. Um, this is at the just on the cusp of the rise of heroin. Um, in the United States during the 60s, so um, he's incarcerated um, in 1973. This is on the brink of the war on drugs. So Nixon declares a war on drugs, and uh, you know says that drug addiction, in particularly heroin, is public enemy number one. He's actually, you know, kind of scapegoating heroin addicted soldiers for political and military losses in Vietnam. He's doing this to distract from Watergate. But what that does is it creates the foundation for the first and the second war on drugs between him and, and Reagan. Um, so this is generational. These are these cause generational problems among these men and their families. This particular veteran, his son goes to prison afterwards, um, and that that third veteran, who's unrelated to the first two, but his father served in Vietnam, a, a, a black man from Mississippi witnessed a lynching during his childhood. Um, he came back from Vietnam with undiagnosed PTSD as well and went into a criminal lifestyle and his son served in Iraq, um, comes back from Iraq with PTSD, um, you know, is contemplating suicide, uh, and violent alterations with police authority. Um, getting drunk, and he ultimately spends four years in prison as well. So what I I, I wanted to show in my chapter is the generational effects of trauma through the lived experiences of African-American veterans throughout the 20th and 21st century. And of of course, my manuscript will, um, you know, show her that greater history. But I really wanted to show a preview of that chapter, and you know, why do they fit among marginalized veterans? Now, end with this, um, if you look at discourse today about veterans, what you will. Here and ultimately see is people talking about suicide. They're talking about PTSD, signature wounds, uh, traumatic brain injury, and homelessness. And what I want to show is that incarceration is part of that conversation, too. But it's such a stigmatized topic of conversation that the American public really refuses to see how mass incarceration affects everyone, including the people that we put on these pedestals as symbols of strength like veterans.
2: Yeah, um, your epilogue it has a hashtag. it's I am Vanessa Guilin. Um Can you explain that to the NBN
3: audience? Sure. So Vanessa Guyen was a, a woman who was um, sexually harassed at Fort Hood um, in April 2020. She had reported the incident to military authorities and they failed to do anything about it. Um, later um, that month, she was bludgeoned to death um, by a man who had been stalking her. Uh, she was um, buried under concrete. This is a very brutal story. Um, and what that story represents for many uh, women in the military is the ongoing and prevalent, what I would call a social crisis of military sexual violence um, and the institutional failure to actually prevent it. So um, in a very kind of brief epilogue, what I hope to do with Vanessa Guillen's story is to show um, the deeper history of all of these various social problems coming to the surface in the, in the experience of one woman, as well as women veterans who led the charge um, in the aftermath to, to try to reform the military. And these reform efforts didn't start in 2020 um, in 2013. Uh, Senator Christian Gillibrand had introduced um, legislation to reform the military justice system, because what happens um, often to these women is, and again, like it's a high rate, it's one in four women in the military today are sexually assaulted. However, most of their perpetrators are never um, punished. So you have this institutional inequality within the criminal justice system as well as the military justice system. Um, and then, uh, John, I hope you can you will speak to this as well. What we wanted to do was show how all of these issues really rise to the surface in the summer of 2020. Um, so it's not just, uh, a continuation of the Me Too movement and the hashtag, which, uh, women on online created, I am Vanessa Goyen, um, in which women were sharing stories that were similar to hers, but also the revival of the Black Lives Matter protest. Um, all of these issues really con- reach a boiling point um, in summer twenty twenty, and that was the moment that we were finishing this manuscript. So, John, do you care to speak to those topics a little sure. more broadly? And, you
1: know, as as we mentioned in the epilogue, uh, you know. Uh, all of this is to sort of remind us that a, you know, these issues have not gone away. Um, and if anything, they are even more complex today. Um, because after all, what we're talking about are multiple, um, social justice projects in which veterans are involved, including the black lives matter, uh, movement. And in fact, you know, we end the book with a, photograph, this remarkable photograph of a wall of vets protest, uh, in which uh, veterans kind of put their bodies on the line to uh, protect uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, anti-racist protesters in 2020. Um, Just as a reminder that, you know, to speak about veterans is, you know, always involves nuance, after all, right? You know, So often, the veteran or veteran stories are invoked as ways of trying to justify kind of, you know, conservative social policies, uh, uh, expansionist uh, military policies, um, you know, uh, a kind of, you know, uh, winner takes all kind of social safety net system in which, some people are viewed as uh, valueless compared to veterans and so forth. But of course, you know, veterans really defy all of the stereotypes against them. But they sort of force us to, you know, when we look at their you know, veterans experiences, we can't sort of make easy assumptions about their lives, their politics, um, their ideas about how to make the world better. Uh, We also wanted to use this, this chapter, this, this epilogue to make this very distinct point about how to study veterans in the future. And and I would make the argument that this goes beyond kind of veteran studies. Uh, You know, we're, we're sort of making an argument in this epilogue about how veteran studies needs to, uh, incorporate some of the ideas and some of the moves that we develop in this book. But, you know, we also make the point that, um, you know, studying veterans, just like really studying anything in history is never a neutral practice, right? Um, by drawing attention to veterans in the Black Lives Matter movement, um, by drawing attention to the Wall of Vets, by drawing attention to uh, Vanessa Guillen, by t- drawing attention to enuretic veterans, right? Um, we as scholars are, you know, taking a stand at some level. We are recognizing that, you know, in bringing some people's Stories to the surface, right? We are, that's, that's, we are, we are transforming history, or at the very least, we are trying to transform kind of who counts and who, whose stories matter in history. Um, Sometimes historians like to think about themselves as sort of, you know, uh, objective and neutral, and they're sort of floating above history as if, you know, uh, they're just telling the story, what happened? Uh, well, you know, I can't speak for Jason, but I reject that idea, right? You know, I believe that historians need to embrace their roles and all scholars embrace their roles as, uh, producing scholarship, producing history that is, of course, peer reviewed, that is, uh, 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 critical that is, you know, supported by textual evidence and primary sources, but that, you know, ultimately, you know, recognizes that, you know, however you write, however you sort of engage in this work, you are taking a stand, you are making a decision, um, you are, um, you know, occupying a social role. And what we wanted to recognize was that, you know, in, drawing attention to the marginalized right that's that's not a that's not a, a an accident right that's something that we are intentionally trying to do as scholars and what you know this is something we would encourage more scholars to do in the future cara
2: vuick's chapter on american women as veterans themselves and it included uh people like phyllis Schaffley. Um, it stands out. uh, Can you describe what the American uh, America's Women's Project was uh, and some of the key actors that were in it?
3: Sure, I guess I can speak to that. So, uh, Dr. Uh, Dixon Viewick wrote about um, the Vietnam Veterans of America and their efforts to include women within these terms of. Veteran. So, she focuses on Linda Vandevanter, um, who was a nurse during Vietnam. Uh, she experienced PTSD. She experienced a lot of um, social and psychological problems stemming directly from the war, um, and she um, got involved at the at the founding moment of the VVA um the way that uh, Dr. Viewett tells the story is that she's having conversations with uh the the founder, the founder of the VVA and all of these memories among these combat veterans resurface her own buried and repressed psychological problems and she breaks down in tears um And so in that moment the VVA realizes that we need to include women, Um, within our organization and help raise awareness, not only uh, to the the fact that, you know, thousands of women served in the Vietnam War, but also that they have unique um, health needs. Um, So this chapter focuses on Vanda Vanter's efforts to um, gain more recognition that women also experienced Various forms of psychological trauma and PTSD. Um, also, that they also have pretty obvious medical needs that are unique as women, um, and efforts to reform the VA to provide care for the women who served as well. And you know, before the this moment, um, women weren't really recognized as a class of veterans themselves. So this whole book is all about who counts as a veteran and who doesn't. And historically, women haven't in the same way that African-American men weren't. Uh, they were excluded from those definitions and legal statuses as United States military veterans and oftentimes erased within public, military, uh, public memory of military service. Um, if you talk to women veterans today, many of them still feel invisible within society like their service was somehow less than even though again as i mentioned before nearly
1: 18 percent of the military today um are women and you know this is i think this is a really good chapter for thinking about this book because uh you know uh van de vanter faces marginalization on multiple fronts, right? When she returns from Vietnam where she serves as a combat nurse, um, she is asked questions like, who's your husband? Or she's told that she doesn't look like a vet. You know, The assumption being that veterans are men, right? And uh, women cannot be veterans or they don't fit, right? So she's marginalized there. Uh, But she's also marginalized when she's seeking social and political solidarity with the feminist movements and feminist organizations of the time uh, who, uh, as they are thinking about, you know, uh, transforming uh, women's roles and battling institutional sexism in the United States, aren't necessarily thinking about women in the military, right? They're not necessarily thinking about veterans, right? And so she kind of winds up experiencing a sort of hostility on multiple levels, right? And nearly all of the groups and all of the figures who are profiled in this book experience something very different, or sorry, experience something very similar, right? Um, They're marginalized within the broader community of veterans, But they're also marginalized within American society as well. And so, so many of our stories are, are so many of the histories we tell are about uh, men and women trying to not only just kind of acknowledge that, but to push back against it. And to really force not only uh, veteran culture, but American culture to recognize them, recognize their service, and to acknowledge them. Uh, alongside their uh, uh, usually straight white male counterparts.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: Being editors, um, would you say that being an editor is, especially on a project like this, is uh, better or worse for a scholar's career in academia? Did being an editor here change your research methods? Um, Were you uh, editing as a team or really like battling with each other's ideas?
3: So as... um one who's in the earliest stages of my academic career, I guess I could speak to the first part of that chapter or uh, that question. Um, I think it's enhanced and elevated my scholarship. Uh, engaging in this project with uh, John has been you know a privilege in that many grad students uh, and I was a PhD student at the time uh, don't have that rare opportunity. Um, I had some background in editing, I have a master's in English, I had done some work for a literary journal in the past, but I didn't really understand the process um, from this perspective. So even just writing a book proposal and things like that, really um, gave me insight into the, the process of book publication. Uh, but I'd also say that it ha- helped elevate me as a scholar, and that You know, I had the profound privilege of editing Heather Sturr's work and, you know, uh, Dr. Viewett's work, and who's wonderful, by the way. And all of these scholars who um, are really generous in their time and in their efforts and their mentorship of of younger students, Um, but they were also just a pleasure to work with. Um, So I learned a lot in my interactions with all of the authors and contributors. Um, And I also learned a lot with just uh, working as a team with John. And to speak to that last bit, I don't think we ever uh, came into any kind of conflict or tension through that process. We weren't really battling ideas, but rather building upon one another's. And I'll let John speak more to that. He may have a different perspective than me.
1: No, I I completely agree. And I should say that, you know, I'm a big fan of the edited volume. Now, within academia today, uh, and particularly within uh, academic publishing, there is some reluctance to publish uh, certain edited collections. You know, uh, sometimes you'll hear that they don't sell as well. Sometimes you hear that at their worst, Edited collections are just simply, you know, groups of essays that that don't really have much to do with each other. They're just sort of bound together. Uh, But I think at their best, um, edited collections are one of the most useful um, uh, forms of academic scholarship um, in a number of ways. Uh, For one, unlike in a journal where you have, you might have, Uh, topics on, you know, seemingly random uh, uh, or articles on seemingly random topics just sort of sitting alongside each other and you open it up and you look at it and is there anything I want to read here? Uh, At their best, edited collections are remarkable when they bring together scholars, right? When they bring together communities of scholars who are grappling with similar ideas, Um, similar um, theories when they're building upon each other, when it's clear that the uh, various scholars have read each other's work. And it's clear that the editors have intervened in the chapters to make sure that they uh, draw them together, that they pull them together um, so that key themes kind of run throughout. In fact, many academic books today, you know, there is a real, emphasis on, on our edited collections, there is a real emphasis on making certain that these are more than just, you know, anthologies, right? That, that even though you have multiple authors, um, what you're getting here is greater than, you know, the collection is greater than, you know, an individual monograph, right? Because what you're getting are glimpses of you know, 12, 13 monographs, right? In these nice condensed forms that you can use, that you can teach. Um, they're also incredibly useful for bringing together communities of scholars. Scholars who you might work on and edit a collection with, and then you might not run into each other for five or six or 10 years. And But then when you come back together, you know, you're still sort of working on um, you're still kind of bound together by the conversations that you were having at one time um, and uh, that you're having, you know, later on as well, right? So uh, I should say that I really adore a great edited collection. Um, I think they can be incredibly powerful teaching tools, but they're also incredibly useful for graduate students who are really trying to get a grasp of the field, right? What are some of the scholars, you know, uh, the top scholars saying, how are they talking to each other? How are they uh, conversing with each other? Right? Yes, you can, you know, work through journals and try to pick out individual articles, but at its best an edited collection does so much of that work for you by bringing these scholars together, uh, by bringing them into conversation uh, and by, you know, uh, organizing their ideas in a way and and showing connections that they might, you know, and a good editor um, draws connections between scholars' work that they themselves might not have have even seen. So, um, you know, not to I, I am incredibly proud of what we've done in service denied. incredibly proud of our contributors, but also. You know, incredibly proud of the conversation that we hope to have engendered with this. We hope out of this book that not only, you know, have we started to develop this concept of the marginalized veteran, but now we have uh, 12, 13, you know, uh, advocates for this concept of the marginalized veteran going forward. Right. at uh, different parts of the academy, different parts of the United States who can sort of develop this, these ideas with their students as well.
3: And I would just add as kind of a bow to, to emphasize that last point that we didn't want to resolve the conversation. We wanted to enrich it. We wanted to start it. We wanted to have others follow um in the same trajectory and expand it to challenge it to, to grow upon it um and in that way an edited volume can really be profoundly influential in the future directions of scholarship and i have to shout out matt becker who's the editor-in-chief of umass press who launched the veteran series and there are only three or four titles so far so we wanted the, the edited collection to also help influence veteran studies as an emergent field within and speaking to and and intersecting with historical scholarship
2: um was there a common thread going throughout the volume that kind of ties all of these moments um together perhaps a facet of war a political entity or a technological agent of change um I think maybe the audience might want to know if there were, you know, commonalities between all of the different authors' writings.
3: John, you can speak to that one, right?
1: Well, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't say that um, a particular facet of war or a particular political entity, uh, I think one common thread going through all these chapters um, that in fact might be in every single chapter is uh, the veterans' bureaucracy, the federal Veterans bureaucracy. Whether we're talking about the uh, the Veterans Bureau or the Veterans Administration, the VA, right? Um, so many of the people who are profiled in this book, at some level or another, are fighting for recognition, and often the first place that recognition comes is with the VA. Um, are they recognized as veterans? is their service validated, um, with that service, do they have access to, uh, the same kinds of, you know, uh, medical procedures, social programs, uh, you know, loans, uh, all those kinds of things that other veterans have, right. Um, are they granted a sense of political recognition, right? So, so many of the people who are you know, uh, fighting you know, against marginalization in this book, right One of the main obstacles they face is the VA. Um, but of course that's not the only uh, uh, obstacle they face. And in some ways, the VA has always been a just simply a reflection of the, the broader culture right? Um, So uh, the VA isn't necessarily kind of coming up with its stigmas and its prejudices and its discriminatory practices or its, you know, progressive practices in some places. It's not just doing that on its own, right? It is reflecting changes and existing attitudes in society. Um, However, for a veteran, Right. The one thing that ties them together, most of them, is some relationship with the federal veterans uh, bureaucracy. Um, whether that is just simply, you know, applying for benefits, you know, immediately after discharge, or as uh, is the case in some of the uh, figures in the book, a kind of lifelong, you know, battle for recognition. You know, one, you know. Uh, one story that I, I tell in my particular chapter is about all of the veterans who are discharged because of enuresis, discharged because of veterans, uh, because of bedwetting, and thus denied, you know, uh, access to veterans benefits and so forth. And, and I show how in some cases, people will, you know, you know, go to veterans courts Again and again and again over the course of I think one Marine goes for a half century before finally his veteranness, his status as a veteran, um, is recognized. Right. So uh, I think the VA is you know perhaps the most uh, obvious kind of thread that runs through them all, uh, through them out, through uh, all of the chapters.
2: Also, chronologically, um, this is supposed to be a modern history. Um, The earliest parts of your volume start with the Spanish-Philippine Wars um, of 1898. And um, could you go over maybe the timeline that you were looking
3: at for this? Sure. Well, I I think it's, um, you know, we have a couple of good book-ending moments, one being what many scholars uh, identify as the rise of American imperialism. Um, uh, so the Spanish-American War is 1898 to approximately 2020. Uh, so we cover, you know, those, um, there are major sections of, of the book and, and John, feel free to jump in here, but uh, World War I era, Um, World War II era, and then Vietnam War era, and then post 9-11. Those are the kind of the four big sections in the way that we organize the chapters, although there's great overlap between each chapter. Um, Some of the authors, uh, you know, cover multiple eras, like mine goes from Vietnam to Iraq, but also John's goes from World War II to today, basically, so.
1: And you know, this is one of the decisions that you know book editors have to make uh, with the publishers themselves. We, as we were putting together this book, we knew we had uh, a number of authors who wanted to work on the twentieth century into the twenty-first century. Um, we didn't really have um, many folks who wanted to work in the nineteenth. Now, of course, you know. Uh, the elephant in the room and talking about war and veterans and marginalized veterans of, uh, in the 19th century is the American civil war, but also all of the, um, wars against, uh, native peoples. Right. And so what we ultimately, I think, and, and maybe Jason will disagree. We sort of decided that that was simply too much, right. Um, it was too big of a topic. It would be, yeah, you know, the you know if we really wanted to you know begin to kind of cover those conflicts um, uh, with any de- to any degree, right? It, the the book would wind up being twice as long, and that's not what our publisher wanted, and so forth. So we had to make a choice, right? Um, and we made a choice to essentially kind of work on this period between the the rise of Uh, uh, American imperialism and the imperial wars of the early 20th century, um, to the imperial wars of the early 21st century. Um, but of course, you know, we hope that if not us, then other people will pick up where we left off, right? Pick up, um, in talking about the American civil war, um, but also pick up talking about, um, uh, you know, veterans of wars that are not really discussed very often, like the War of 1812, for example. Um, so uh, there's so much more work to do. We felt like in this one volume, uh, we could only cover so much. Right? So you know, we, we decided to kind of cut it off, you know, to, to broadly define it around the 20th century.
3: And, and to add to that, you know, that's how we also conceptualized, you know, nationality of, of the veterans we were studying. We focused on uh, U.S. military veterans. Of course, we could have expanded that, and there's certainly a transnational global history component built into our work, especially if you look at, like, Jesse Fraser and other African Americans who served in Europe during the First World War, and that leads to Political consciousness is, and you know international solidarity with colonized people and how those experiences abroad influence the way the way that they think about their social positions at home. So that's just one aspect. That yes, we we do focus on American veterans, but also we we want to show how their experiences internationally um, ultimately affect how they see themselves within American society as well.
2: What was it that was holding veterans back from getting the documentation? You you feel like they deserved um in historical in historical records.
1: Well, I can jump in there. Um, and this is the this is the issue. Um, many veterans, you know, have been profiled. Many veterans have received um uh, uh, a great deal of not only public acclaim, but the scholarly interest, you know, of course we've had a number of veteran themed holidays in the United States, whether we're, um, you know, uh, especially you know, thinking about veterans day, for example. Right. Um, so our whole point is that all veterans, it's not that all veterans have been ignored. Um, it's not that all veterans have somehow, uh, we should view kind of all veterans in the same way we view other marginalized, um, socially, politically, economically marginalized groups in American society. Uh, what we were trying to kind of point out is that among veterans, certain groups, certain populations, right? Um, whether it's veterans of wars that didn't quite go the way that many people wanted them to go, um, uh, people of color, because of race, because of gender, because of you know uh, disability, you know certain veterans, you know have been denied you know the, not only recognition but also access to what I and others in uh, have called the veteran state. Um, you know that is this kind of conglomeration of policies and institutions and medical resources that have been set up, you know, largely at the, the kind of uh, demand of veterans groups themselves, um, set up to kind of, you know, deal with veterans long-term uh, uh, struggles after war, right? Uh, a lot of the people that we talk about in this book um, have not had access to that. Right. And so um, and the reason they haven't had access to that is, well, in part because they were a not viewed as veterans or not viewed as real veterans, you know, just like Linda Vanderbilt, you know, that, you know, there's the real veteran, you know, and then there's a, the combat nurse. right? Um, so there's a sense that some veterans count more than others but also, and this goes to run throughout the book, because of the institutional discrimination that um, runs throughout American society on when it comes to race, gender, disability, and so forth, right? Uh, Sometimes we kind of think about the military as a institution upon itself, right? Or an institution that is kind of separate from the rest of American society. Well, uh, when it comes to discrimination, when it comes to uh, lack of access, uh, that's simply not the case. The U.S. military is in many ways um, uh, uh, a condensed version of American society at both its best and its worst. And that means that groups who would have been um, discriminated against, ignored, marginalized um uh, in uh, you know, civilian society, find themselves, uh, you know, finding the same kinds of obstacles both in the military and then, you know, uh, after their military service, um, as they try to, as they try to negotiate their the the you know their their veteran identity at a time when maybe because you know, their their military experience was denied, right. Was not recognized.
3: And quickly, I would just add that um, part of this marginalization comes from within the process of creating historical knowledge, the production of new knowledge. To kind of allude to silencing the past, by Trujillo, he he writes about not only are certain groups erased from the archives, but also um, uh, what's what's called you know retro aspect of significance. So what have scholars in the past thought was important enough to write about? And I think that John Kendrew's you know, chapter on inuretic veterans really illustrates that point, but also Barbara Gannon's chapter on Spanish-American war veterans. In many ways, they were marginalized by other veterans groups. These generational divides between them, between uh, the Civil War and the First World War, in which uh, the public and politicians kind of thought of those veterans and their injuries and disabilities as substantive enough to have earned them these entitlements and benefits of military service Um, and then there's also the, the problem of documentation so elizabeth hillman has written about court-martials. Um, and court-martials, if someone uh, you know commits a crime from within the military, there is documentation of it. There's court records. But a lot of these veterans we write about, from LGBTQ veterans to African-American veterans in the Vietnam War period, they were given bad paper discharges. And with that, there isn't as much documentation, because in many ways, that was a way for the military to process, uh, process out what they deemed as undesirable. So there were less records, Um, there was less interest, there were less numbers of veterans who were willing to organize together across generations in order to fight for disability benefits, for example.
2: Viewing a map of the United States, where would you say had the biggest pushback against veterans topographically speaking? Is there a geography of marginalized veterans?
1: Jason, you have... Any ideas about that?
3: it it changes uh, depending on you know which groups you're talking about, which eras you're talking about. Certainly, if you're uh, studying African American veterans in the World War One era who left the South during the first Great Migration and went to industrial centers like Chicago or Detroit or New York, or even Black veterans who left during the Second World War and went to Oakland, California to participate in the war industry, there's certainly marginalization with different groups, but I've never really thought about limiting my scholarship geographically. If anything, that happens out of circumstance. So I was studying in New England, and a lot of the interviews I did were in Philadelphia and New York City and Washington, D.C. and Buffalo, New York, and Massachusetts. So it's out of circumstance for me. But I hope to bridge those geographical um, limitations through social media. So I was doing telephone interviews and, uh, you know, interviews via Zoom and using technology to transcend the the geographical locations of where I was studying. So I've never really, um, you know, I guess out of happenstance, a lot of the work I've done is East Coast. But uh, that's not to say that someone couldn't you know write the history of incarcerated veterans in california it might look different but similarly in that the themes are the same so i don't really know john what are your thoughts on geography of marginalization well
1: i mean you know this is such an interesting concept because it really gets us back to what does it mean to be a veteran or what does it mean to kind of claim a veteran identity um i will sometimes tell my uh students about a uh, a rock war veteran who I happen to know and I sort of talk about it and, and I will sort of point out that you would never know he was a veteran unless you happen to ask him and if you happen to ask him what he did in uh, the military he would say the same thing I do today which is IT right um, so he worked on computers right now on the one hand you would sort of say that well, what kind of, you know, that's that's not who I think of as a veteran, someone who's, you know, providing kind of computer support. But of course, when we're thinking about veterans, um, you know, we recognize, we have to recognize that, you know, it's not just people who kind of point guns and fire. And so then you have to think about, well, when does that person become a veteran? Like when does that person actually, when is that person's idea or identity as a veteran, like when does it come to a surface? And in that sense, veterans identity often comes to a surface in several locations, right? One is within veterans groups, right? Veterans halls, right? So, you know, one's access to a veterans hall, one's access to the American Legion, one's access to um, the VFW, right, is defined by your identity as a veteran, right? So quite literally, you know, you can, you know, some are welcomed in, some are not, right? So it's at that space that's where one's uh, veteran identity sort of becomes important. Another space, of course, is you know at veterans' hospitals and at uh, federal institutions. And I mentioned the VA earlier, uh, in which one's veteran's identity is uh, either confirmed or contested. Right. So if you want to think about Um, a geography of veteranness. you know, one way to do that would be to sort of highlight uh, on a map, you know, all of the military bases, all of the veterans' hospitals, all of the veteran centers, and so forth, and look at it like that. And what you'll find is that, you know, that geography will look a lot like the United States, right? So there's no place that I think is more important than others. I, I would also point out, and maybe Jason can point to this, um, another space or another kind of geography or geographical marker where ven- veteranness is so important is the U.S. border, right? Um, as we, you know, so as we sort of document in the book, um, there are you know number of Amer- uh, number of uh, veterans of America's recent wars who were not you know, uh, technically, uh, American citizens, right? And so the idea was that they would join the military in order to, um, uh, uh gain their citizenship, which is a, a you know, a a, 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 process with a long history, right? But of course, you know, um, uh, the border becomes one of these places where their identities as veterans are contested, particularly if, um, after service, they find themselves, um, deported from the nation. Uh, uh, Jason, do you want to sort of speak to your own kind of work on, uh, worth, uh, deported veterans? Well,
3: in many ways, my work is, is just beginning on deported veterans, but de- deported veterans themselves have been raising public awareness to the problem of veterans being deported um, you know, outside of the United States after military service for years. You know, Hector Barajas founded a, a group of deported veterans in Tijuana, Mexico, but also um, across different uh, areas in the world. There's a group called the Black Deported Veterans uh, Project, which seeks to raise attention to um, uh, people of color who aren't in Mexico, for example, right? So like in the United States media and in Congress and uh, Biden has uh, tried to, you know, incorporate deported veterans uh, back into the United States. Certain groups have been left out, like people in Haiti. For example. So, um, but that speaks to the bigger point that you were making, and that's that, you know, veteranhood or veteranness is, you know, defined within military service, and the United States military is all around the world. There are 800 military bases around the globe that encircle that. So, I mean, when, I don't think you can really limit it to geography in, in the traditional way.
2: Yeah. Um, what about marginalized veterans in positions of authority? Um, presidents, many presidents who served in the military, for example, who are veterans. Would you categorize that as someone who might be marginalized as well?
3: That's a good question. That one's a surprising one to me, John. You wanna you wanna take the lead on that while I think about it. Well,
1: you know. Obviously, uh, if you're and this is this is a tension that we try to acknowledge in all of the chapters, as well as in introduction and in the conclusion, Um, as we said, you know, from the very beginning for at first glance, uh, the concept of the marginalized veteran doesn't seem to make sense. You know, after all, if you look at 20th century U.S. presidents, uh, a number of them have been military veterans, right? In fact, it was almost uh, required you know, uh, that you be have some kind of military service uh, in order to achieve um, uh, the presidency in certain parts of the 20th century. And as well as if you look at Congress and you look at uh, runs for Senate, you know, very often candidates will highlight their veteran uh, identity, highlight their military service as a way to kind of Uh, Or they will try to leverage that as uh, yet another reason why they are deserving of political office. So from that perspective, you know, speaking of marginalization and veterans doesn't make sense. And yet, as we were trying to sort of point out throughout the book is that, you know, veterans are a huge population, right? And within that population, there are hierarchies. There are certain veterans, there are certain types of veterans, there are certain ways of being a veteran, there are certain ways of expressing your veteranhood. There's a certain kind of political orientation associated with veterans that are, that is privileged in American society, that has been privileged in American society, right? And there are plenty of other people um, who for one reason or another, because of race, because of class, because of gender, because they happen to wet the bed, because of all kinds of things, um, don't have access to that privileged identity, right? And that's ultimately what we wanted to get at, right? The the different ways, you know, yes, we want to recognize uh, the ways that veterans uh, are privileged in many respects in you know, not only in the United States but around the world in terms of you know their service to the nation and so forth. but we also want to recognize the millions of people who, who get left out right? And that's ultimately you know what we want marginalized marginalized veteran to mean you know not that you know veterans as a whole as a class are find themselves on the outs, although you know numerically, uh, uh veterans do represent a smaller and smaller portion of American society you know today than they have in the past right so in that sense veterans do represent um you know can be understood as as marginalized but but what we really wanted to get at um, are the distinctions of uh, within veterans and within veterans groups and to just simply draw attention to the fact that not all veterans, Look like Dwight Eisenhower. Not all veterans look like JFK, right? Not all uh, veterans look like Jimmy Carter. <laughs> and so, um, that's that's w- at least one of our, uh, you know, uh, ambitions for this book. Right. I
3: think that veterans have necessarily had to organize more, increasingly over the last few decades, because they're represented in fewer numbers in congress today so there are 91 out of 535 members of congress who served in the military and that sounds like a, like a like a substantial portion but in all actuality that's the lowest percentage of military veterans in congress since before world war ii and in absence of that representation veterans groups like the VVA, like the Vietnam veterans of America and disabled American veterans and Iraq and Afghanistan veterans of America have had to bond and, and join forces in order to lobby and to um, force legislation through Congress. And the most recent um, you know, example of this is, of course, the PACT Act, um, in which, you know, uh, the veterans had to to organize because Republicans rejected that legislation, which would have expanded military benefits and health um, benefits to veterans who had been exposed to toxic burn pits while in Iraq and other places in the world. And so, whenever Republicans rejected that legislation, uh, what we saw was, you know, of course, John Stewart who called. Republicans out for their hypocrisy. But if you look in the video that went viral, you know, standing beside him was representatives from the American Legion, from the VFW, from the VBA, from all of these other veterans organizations who do, do the unseen labor of organizing and making sure that veterans aren't just political props and archetypes that politicians can use to enact their own agendas, but rather that Congress puts the issues that veterans face at the forefront of politics today. Um, it's interesting that those efforts are sometimes left out of the national narrative within the media about, you know, um, fighting for, for services that are denied.
2: Um, what kind of trauma do you think motivates veterans, especially when it comes to rallies? Um, an example is like the Capitol insurrection of January 6th. That's like a famous moment. Um, do you know of other examples of of veterans getting together to rally behind their, their own cause?
3: Well, I mean, certainly there are numerous examples from the Vietnam War period, whether you're talking about John Kerry, who's leading the Vietnam veterans against the war and who famously this group rejected their medals upon the steps of the Capitol building. That's a really famous incident. Um, But you're asking about the traumas that lead to those experiences. And I would say that moral injury is a really good um, psychological concept that which can explain the reasons why veterans protest. Uh, so uh, moral injury is a betrayal of what's right in the situation that high stakes like war. It's usually um, from, a, from someone in a position of authority. Um, but also earlier uh, you know criteria that defined Vietnam stress syndrome, which became PTSD in 1980, was protest. So these people had experienced something in the military which contradicted their basic ideological understanding of the world, the United States, and the role within it. And so one of the effects, I would argue, is you know, uh, protesting against those types of policies in the first place. But also, Vanessa Guyen is a really good example of this as well, as the women who rallied behind that you know, very tragic murder and started sharing online their very personal testimonies of sexual violence in the military. So that's a, a type of moral injury as well, because of that betrayal of the military justice system to protect women. So what they're doing is they're speaking out, advocating, bearing witness to injustice, but that could also be traced back to you know, responses to military sexual trauma itself. Now as far as you know pathologizing the insurrectionist who participated in a January sixth um, insurrection, I wouldn't go that far, right? There there may be some underlying um, trauma that that influences those types of reactions, but I think you also have to take into um account social media, these echo chambers in which, you know, um, online these veterans groups are being bombarded with right-wing news sources and misinformation campaigns and all of these um, sources which inherently create this echo chamber. Um, But also the process of being marginalized within American society, whether that's real imagined or exaggerated i think you have to also take into account why maga ideology appealed to certain groups of veterans who felt like the economy may have left them out so um you know there, there's numerous reasons why veterans were a substantive portion among insurrectionists, so I, I wouldn't feel very comfortable saying that this is a, a reaction to PTSD. Um, but you know, there are other types of social um, stigmatization which may make a group of people feel like outsiders.
1: And you know, I I should just sort of jump in and say, you know, there's a whole you know a long history of veterans, whether we're talking about uh, in the aftermath of the War of 1812 most famously in the aftermath of the uh, civil war with the grand army and the Republic um, to, you know, the kind of modern veteran groups that we associate with the uh, world war one kind of using their political activism, using their rallies, using their uh, access to Congress, using uh, all kinds of, you know, uh, support mechanisms to, you know, to, to, press for a, a a vision of American society that, you know, recognizes veterans and um, recognizes their uh, past sacrifices and, you know, present uh, struggles, right? So whether we're talking about groups like the Disabled American Veterans and their invention of Forget Me Not Day, which was a holiday in the 1920s, they in invented in which they would you know, pass out uh, or sell you know, handmade flowers and you know, so that Americans would not forget the suffering of disabled veterans. Um, whether we're talking about the bonus march of 1932 in which angry World War I veterans uh, at uh, the height of the Great Depression uh, who felt like they had been betrayed that the bonus that they had earned, uh, in their military service, you know, um, which was needed now was being, you know, um, delayed to a point where, you know, many of them couldn't make it to the Vietnam war, um, protests and so forth. You know, what we're talking about, uh, there's a long history of veterans organizing, getting together and pushing for, you know, uh, not just, uh, you know, better access, better facilities, better recognition of, you know, or greater recognition of veterans' plight, but also for political um, political movements as well. And like Jason, I too would be very, very hesitant to sort of, you know, ascribe uh, uh, January 6th uh, really to anything having to do with veterans, right? In fact, part of what we wanted to kind of point out in this book is just why it's so difficult, um, and it takes such nuance when we're talking about veterans, because after all, you know, one of the most famous, uh, you know, uh, casualties of that uh, of that, you know, uh, insurrection, Ashley Babbitt was um, a. Uh, not only was she uh, a conspiracy theorist, um, but she was also a U.S. veteran, right? But on the other side of that, you know. You also have American veterans uh, in the uh, who you know served in the police force that protected the Capitol and so forth, right? Um, and so you know, yes, this is a this is a moment in which veterans are involved, right? But I, I think we should be really careful um, by you know when we kind of take you know some veterans in the crowd and sort of try to you know, connect that to the broader population. You know, uh, ultimately what we want in this book is to, you know, encourage both readers and future scholars not to generalize, right? Not to make these overarching statements about who veterans are, what they stand for, what they want, um, what traumatizes them, you know, and to recognize, you know, diversity among veterans right, even among veterans of the same war. Right. And what about the GI Bill? When does that take effect and how
2: does it relate to Chicano-Americans and other Americans who need these kind of benefits?
1: Well, the GI Bill, um, you know, is a product of World War Two. right? Um, it's a uh, a set of legislation that is designed to help uh, those who serve in the military, um, not only reintegrate into American society post-service, but also to flourish, right? So it it involved things like um, uh, loans for housing, access to education, Um, access to job training, right? And uh, this really was beneficial, right? This is really, you know, and and scholars have kind of pointed to the GI Bill as helping to jumpstart the, uh, you know, the kind of consumer uh, uh, society and the kind of uh, the sort of the flourishing of American society in the 1950s, right? It's it's a really important, um, you know, uh, Act. The problem was, of course, not everyone had access to it, right? Not everyone had access to um, uh, all of the services associated with um, the GI Bill, right? And so people of color, um, queer people, women, people who were discharged for, you know, uh, unsuitable you know, uh, injuries and physical, right. They were often denied, you know, access to the GI bill. And as such, they were denied access in many ways to this, uh, to the American dream. Uh, They were access to college, access to the middle class and so forth. Right. And so, uh, you know, one of our, you know, uh, most interesting chapters, talks about how Mexican Americans, um, you know, their troubled relationship with the GI Bill, right. Uh, on the one hand, you know, some of them were able to, you know, for all kinds of reasons, they were able to take access, gain access to the, um, Bill. Uh, and as the 20th century progressed, you know, more and more were able to sort of, you know, uh, claim some of its benefits. However, as the chapter points out, um, over the course of the 20th century as well, uh, uh, the GI Bill became less generous, right? So, you know, one could make an argument that, well, the GI Bill was at its most generous at the moment when it was, um, you know, People of color and uh, women were largely excluded, right? And as more people of color, more women came to um, have access to the GI Bill, you know, it uh, was no longer, you know, as generous as it once was. And you know, I, I don't think there's a, you know, a coincidence there. I think that, you know, just another way in which the military, you know, reflects. Um, society and reflect some of the kind of social uh, pressures and the social forces that, uh, and the discriminatory forces um, within American society as well, right? So we still have versions of the GI bill. Um, and, but what we're really talking about are sort of iterations of this, uh, you know, this, this idea that emerged in 1944, do you have
2: any thoughts on the idea of perpetual wars, especially during the 20th century um, and how veterans are, are foisted, sort of so to speak, within the interwar period? Um, is there an interwar period that extends
3: itself beyond World War Two? Well, I mean, the Cold War was never exactly cold, was it? I mean, if you think about covert operations, the rise of national security apparatus, the CIA, in which John Foster Dulles and his brother Alan Dulles were able to overthrow democratically elected governments in uh, Iran with Mohammed Mosaddegh in, you know, 1953, and following shortly thereafter in Guatemala in 1954, uh, U.S. intervention in the French Indochina War, in which by 19 19- Fifty-four, the United States was financing nearly 80% of the French efforts to recolonize Vietnam. Um, the Korean war, of course, which is somewhat forgotten within the, the larger canon of American military studies in some respects, although that's changing. So I, I do think that the, the United States has been engaged in a type of perpetual conflict Whether or not that reaches the levels of total warfare like you saw in World War II, absolutely not. But, um, yeah, I think that it's fair to say that the United States military has been engaged in uh, perpetual interventions in other nations throughout the 20th and 21st century with periods where those interventions escalate to full-blown violence.
1: And of course, you know, one obvious thing that's missing from our study and, you know, as editors and writers, we have to make choices, uh, wh- uh, is simply the fact that, you know, we're not talking about all of the veterans who, of American wars, uh, who are fighting against the United States, right. You know, uh, all of the people who experience, uh, the extension of American violence, whether it is in wartime or in this kind of kind of Cold War era period when war is not necessarily declared, whether we're talking about kind of you know uh, long distance bombings, drone bombings, that sort of thing, and you know the fact that when we're talking about pe- how people experience war around the world, um, most people who are injured by war aren't wearing military uniforms. Right. Um, and in fact, this is something that's changed over the course of the 20th century. Um, and, uh, you know, we can see it's real changes in world war II. but, um, most of the casualties of war, most of the people who are impacted by war, most people, uh, most of the people who suffer from war, right. Are civilians, right. They are not within the formal military, Except, you know, one place where that's not the case is the United States, right? And I think that's one of the things that we as scholars, we as teachers, really need to work on and really need to sort of hammer home for our students. Um, Most nations' experience of war is not like the United States' experience of war. Most veterans' experience of war is not like American veterans' experience of war, in which, you know, war is something that takes place over there. You join the military, you go off, you come back, and so you know, we have this this sort of broad narrative, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, around the world. That is not most people's experiences of of war, right? Whether we're talking about Afghanistan, whether we're talking about um, Libya, whether we're talking about Iraq, Iran, uh, uh, Myanmar, yeah, you know, where wherever, right? And so. I think that's one thing that um, future scholars will have to grapple with, you know, not only um, how the veterans of American wars have are much more complex, much more diverse uh, than we often think about them as, um, but you know, we we really have to sort of think about all of the people on the other side, right? Whether we're talking about uh, people within the military. Uh, whether we're talking about civilians, whether we're talking about children, right, who are in themselves veterans of America's wars, right? And, I mean, in some ways, they are the most marginalized group at all, uh, at least within the military, uh, within the American imagination. When we talk about war veterans uh, in the United States, we're generally not talking about five-year-olds, you know, in Iraq who you know, uh, find themselves permanently maimed by drone attacks, right? We're not talking about uh, children in Afghanistan who find themselves poisoned, you know, as a result of U.S. armaments, right? We're, you know, these are war veterans themselves who have been completely erased from the American calculation of warfare right So you know there's so much more work that needs to be done. Um, we are just barely scratching the surface here.
2: where where in the volume do you mention um, the sexual deviance of certain groups, whether that just be um, LGBTQ communities or people who may have um, different uh, gender identities?
3: Well, I mean, Heather Sturr's chapter is the most obvious place um, where those issues are, are discussed, in which you know homosexuality is actually criminalized within the, the 20th century uh, U.S. society, and certainly the military. If um, military service members were even suspected of engaging in these types of sexual deviance, quote unquote, um, they could be kicked out. Of the military without benefits. So uh, they would have been pre- uh, described as having, uh, you know, pre existing um, features which deemed them unsuitable for military service. And certainly that's not limited to uh, gay veterans, but also, um, you know, Black veterans and, and others who were deemed as socially unfit or um, susceptible to espionage, for example. So one of the um, factors are, uh, that would disqualify a military service member um, from veteran status with another than normal discharge would have been, quote unquote, moral turpitude. And that's so and broadly conceptualized, that uh, anyone who was suspected without being loyal to the United States, for example, during the Cold War period, could have been, you know, um, kicked out of the military without much proof or evidence whatsoever. And John has a lot to say about that. Um, I know.
1: Well, and you know, uh, I talked about aneurysis, right? And in my chapter, you know, aneurysis comes to be a sign of all kinds of deviancies, right? You know, whether we're talking about childishness, whether we're talking about a kind of psychotic, um, pathology, you know, it was associated with, um, homosexuality. And, you know, I think the one thing that we want to kind of recognize and we as scholars, sorry, we need to take a stand in terms of how we are using the terminology of the past, right? Um, uh, uh, you know, the way that sexual deviancy is defined within the military, particularly among um, physicians and psychologists in the World War II era, what you can really see once you start to drill down is that sexual deviancy basically means anything they want it to mean, right? Uh, Sexual deviancy becomes a sort of blanket bogeyman um, that they can use to sort of disqualify anyone who does not fit their narrow sense of who belongs, right? And so, you know, and this is something that Heather Sturr talks about in her piece as well, whether we're talking, you know, um, particularly as it relates to um, battles to uh, recognize trans uh, gender military uh, uh, veterans, you know, that, that when we're thinking about these terms like sexual deviancy, when we're thinking about sort of these categories right we always need to as scholars step back and recognize that you know we these are not neutral terms these are not neutral descriptions of actual you know uh, kind of physiological conditions right these are ideological categories that you know people are placed into. Right. And, you know, one thing that we try to sort of do in this book is to sort of show the ways, the many different ways in which all of these deep groups, right. In one way or another are categorized as unsuitable, undesirable, um, you know, uh, uh, not, you know, uh, deserving, Right. And one thing that we see is the same things seem to come up over again and again and again. Right. Um, Whatever they happen to be, whether it's, you know, someone who wets the bed or someone who's a person of color or someone who's trans, you know, they they wind up being associated with the same sort of tired, cliched, uh, you know, categories, you know. uh, And, you know, this is not you know, and this is not a coincidence, right? Um, so one thing we want to do is we want to sort of, uh, draw attention, you know, to the ways in which the contemporary military might or might not be falling into these same old patterns, right? Um, and, you know, so that's, that's just sort of one of the ways in which these, you know, we hope you kind of emerge from a book like this, um, deeply critical of just some of the basic categories that people use when they're talking about, um, you know, military veterans as well. And, and so, you know, uh, I, I think that's, that's one thing that all of the chapters share in common. Do you have
2: any thoughts on Kernan's chapter, um, The Patriot Penalty um, and Neoliberalism?
1: Jason, you edited that one. Uh, Do you have uh, thoughts about it?
3: Sure. Um, Well, I think the most interesting thing about David Kiernan's uh, chapter is how he shows that um, politicians in general um, were not uh, meeting the needs of U.S. troops. So while in rhetoric there was a lot of support, the troops, in, in popular culture and within media. Um, but these actual soldiers in the National Guard, um, they were uh, required to complete multiple deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan quite unexpectedly. These were National Guard and Reserve troops who had signed up um, you know, as part-time soldiers essentially, and they had jobs, they had lives, they had families. And what uh, David argues is that military service actually became a financial burden on their families because they were being paid less than their careers would have paid them. And this ties back into John Morrison's Croft's chapter about how the military creates marginalized men and, um, yeah, it's a it's a very interesting chapter that connects socioeconomic class with uh, you know policymakers who, in rhetoric, uh, support the troops, but in reality, um, are actually engaging in that type of um, austerity politics.
2: Are there other categories of military veterans in the sense that maybe you have refugees who who weren't in the military, but feel like they've actually experienced a lot of things that veterans experience
3: i wish there were to be honest with you nathan i think that 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 would have been a particular um strength of the the chapter uh in broadening who we would consider to be veterans of American wars. And if you're interested in a fantastic book on refugees, I highly recommend my colleague Amanda Dimmer's work um, called After Saigon's Fall, which deals with um, Vietnamese refugees and policymaking after the end of the American war in Vietnam. John, do you have thoughts on that?
1: No, I I just want to uh, agree with you that, you know, there are a number of groups who for one reason or another, we've had to leave out, and you know, this is this is one of the drawbacks of the edited collection, which is that you know, an, an edited collection, um, particularly a, a you know one that's trying to be approachable, one that's trying to be classroom friendly, you know, you have to make some decisions. There, you know, you can't quite cover everything, right? So, you know, what we see in this book is that. Yeah, there are many different groups um, whose experiences of uh, American wars are marginalized, right? Whether we're talking about people who come home with disabilities that don't look like the kinds of disabilities that you see in Hollywood movies, um, whether it's people from branches of service who might be unfamiliar to the vast majority of Americans, right? Whether it's people who you know, wind up being traumatically injured, you know, during military service, but it's not during a time of a major war, right? So they're, you know, they're not really recognized. Um, or it's people whose lives have been so upended by not just military service, but the effects of American war, um, that they are, you know, uh, grappling with, struggling with uh, the effects of that for the rest of their lives, whether they wore uniform or not, right? Um, You know, uh, American war touches uh, so many people's lives, um, but especially touches people's lives outside of America, right? And I hope that more and more scholars kind of, you know, take that as a starting point, as we begin to kind of think about the legacies of America's wars, both past and present.
3: And just to add to that, I think that moving forward, the field of veteran studies
1: itself
3: needs to critically engage with some of these more difficult tr- uh, questions about the field. And that I hope, at least personally, that my focus on American military veterans uh, doesn't um, you know, distract Historians and the public alike to the actual primary victims of American wars, which are are not military veterans. They are, like John said, suppressionly, they're oftentimes civilians. There there are people who are trapped between these global forces over which they have very little control, um, and you know ultimately radicalized. Uh, so I, I I would hope that um, you know people who study war and society more generally will never lose sight of the policies and the experiences that perpetuate war um, moving forward into the 20th, first century.
2: Were there any branches of the military that showed more suffering than others, or is it just a broad spectrum?
1: Well, you know, and this is, you know, this is one of the, uh, you know, limitations of our work as well, right? Um, uh, most people who focus on veterans, including in this book, um, uh, tend to focus on veterans, of, uh, you know, the, uh, combat forces of the, uh, army and the Marines. Although I know some of the chapters have to do with, um, uh, you know, Linda Vandevelt is a air force veteran, uh, or no, um, one of the chapters involves an air force veteran, not that one. Um, but, uh, So, yeah, so we don't really talk about, you know, naval veterans that much. We don't really talk about um, the Air Force that much. So uh, I'm not sure I can sort of make a broad claim about suffering um, from one branch or another. Jason, how about you?
3: Yeah, similarly, I I would be very hesitant about trying to define and quantify and qualify suffering. In, in, in the broadest terms of that. that uh, Just to shout out Juan Coronado, whose chapter is on uh, Vietnam War POWs, he does talk about Air Force uh, veterans because the vast majority of POWs in Vietnam were, were shot down. Um, so they, they, they would have included the Air Force.
2: And in going into the 21st century, um, what in particular the latter part of the 20th century, you have the Middle East and Afghanistan. Um, do you want to talk to your audience more about those spe- specific issues during that time, if there were any?
3: Well, I think that the, the biggest historic change between 21st and 20th century American warfare, um, is the people who serve in the military. So not only am I talking about demographics of more women, more people of color, more women of color in particular, I'm also talking about the people who were serving multiple deployments and their families. Uh, so because uh, the conditions of war in Iraq and Afghanistan necessitated the need for multiple deployments, what you What we found is that the veterans of those conflicts were more likely to experience traumatic brain injury, uh, PTSD, uh, with more women in the military today, higher rates of military sexual violence, um, and a plethora of social problems that veterans faced after military service. That's not to say that all of them experienced these types of problems, uh, but Certainly, I think that the need for more American bodies to fill the needs of a global war on terrorism have created a a fraction of a population that um, has experienced personally American war. Um, Of course, globally, um, it's other nations, as John Put it who experienced American war. Um, And within the United States, it's just a tiny fraction. It's fewer than one half of 1% of the population serves in the military. Um, actively, and a lot of the, the times these are military families who have legacies of military service. So I am um, thinking in my own scholarship about what are the effects of intergenerational trauma that are passed down through these military families and their the legacies of military service within them. Um can
2: you tell us about your future plans? Um do you guys plan on editing together or do you want to go on and do individual projects?
1: Well, so you know, I hope in the future, you know, we will edit something together, you know, uh you know, we will have to sort of give it give it a little time, see what what comes out next whether it's another uh marginalized veteran book or something else, but you know, that's that's one of the great things about being in academia is that you wind up, uh, encountering people you can work with, um, for a long time and whose work, you know, you value and, uh, you know, you, you know, whose work you, know, you, uh, are inspired by, right. And I, I'm certainly, uh, you know, found that, you know, working with Jason, um, moving forward, you know, like I said, I have a book, uh, that has been accepted by the University of Chicago Press. On uh, uh, it's uh, uh, called "The Ark and the Flood." You know, zoos and uh, a history of zoos during World War II. Uh, I'm also co-editing a another book with my colleague uh, Jen Murray at Oklahoma State, which is looking at the uh, memories of uh, the Civil War. In contemporary America, we're particularly interested in the different ways in which ideas about the Civil War, the U.S. Civil War have been uh, manipulated, how they've been uh, misremembered, how they've been uh, used and abused in contemporary political discourse uh, from, uh, you know, especially with, you know, attention on things like January 6th. So that's that's kind of those are my plans in the next year
3: well i would certainly welcome any future opportunities to continue to collaborate um, with john the other authors and other um aspiring uh people in academia who w- who would like to have more experience in publishing so my postdoctoral fellow Um, I work with Virginia Tech Publishing, and I'm very um, engaged in open access uh, knowledge and and democratizing knowledge and and trying to, as a public historian, this is very important to me, right, like getting the knowledge out of the ivory tower into the people who can actually uh, enact policy or affect change or um, uh, lead to at least Raising public awareness. Um, my my next uh, book will be called Stars, Bars, and Stripes, and again, that's about the history of incarcerated veterans since the Vietnam War period. Um, and at the moment, I'm really engaged in my teaching. Uh, teaching is something that I love to do. And if I'm so privileged and fortunate enough to stay within academia, that's something I'm really committed to doing. I recently uh, was approved for an NEH grant in which uh, John will uh, also visit Virginia Tech. and, And what the team is going to do is train K-12 educators how to conduct oral history interviews with veterans within their classrooms and to integrate veteran studies and their experiences into high school curriculum. So that's that's one project I'm really excited about. As far as my research, um, I'm I'm really interested in oral history and trauma, and, and hopefully uh, there's a, a project on deported veterans um, in the pipeline, and if not by me, by someone who's listening, who is willing, willing to, to carry the boundaries of this type of scholarship forward.
2: Well, it was great getting to know each of you, and on behalf of the New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore, we thank our editors today, John Kinder and Jason Higgins, for teaching us about the history of marginalized veterans. Um, Stay up to date on all things NBN to get more episodes like this one, and um, wishing everyone the best. Thanks.
3: Thank you, Nathan, for this generous...